So just as a little reminder, um, this encounter takes place in a place called Sychar, which is just a stone's throw from a place, a city, uh, and Sychar is actually a, a, a corruption of, of uh, or is, is thought to be Shechem. Sychar, Shechem, it's not too far away, and then there's uh, a shift. And so Shechem uh, is a place where uh, there was significance in the Old Testament. We saw that last week. It was a place where Abraham first received from God the word that he would be, through him, uh, all nations would be blessed, but that he would be, uh, that, that his line, through his line, uh, God would, would bring blessing. And then uh, later on, it was a place where Jacob bought a, a plot of ground, and that's where he uh, dug his well. And so it was a place uh, of covenant uh, where Jacob worshipped God in that piece of land. And then later on, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel after they'd entered the land, so significant period of time later on, and they renewed the covenant to God there. And so it's a place of, of, of God's covenant, a place of relationship between God and the people, and a place where God had first revealed His intention to uh, find a way through Abraham and his line to bring in all the nations of the world. And he would do that through establishing Jacob's line as a nation, the nation of Israel, and then through that line to all the earth. We also saw that it's a place that was marked by uh, hostility in the past. When Jacob uh, bought his land there and, and set up um, and worshipped God, set up an altar and worshipped God there, uh, his daughter Dinah went to visit some of the local people and was raped by one of them. And the man who raped her then wanted, strangely, to marry her. Uh, and at the end of a process of negotiation, where uh, Jacob's family were so incensed at what had been done to the sister, that they entered into a kind of pseudo-agreement um, to intermarry, well, you know, a wee bit of uh, reconciliation. But it was a bit of a trap, because actually the deal was that all of the, the sons of, of Shechem, that, of that area, who were not uh, Jews, had to be, they said, well, we'll intermarry with you if the males in your community are circumcised, because we couldn't countenance that otherwise. And while the men were recovering from surgery, the sons of Jacob went and killed them all as an act of vengeance. And so it was a place of bitter hostility, cultural hostility. And of course, now it's in Samaria, which is a different kind of cultural hostility between Jews and Samaritans. And Samaritans, as we saw last week, were, were Jewish people who stayed behind in the exile. They didn't go off, but they kept a low profile by intermarrying with non-Jewish people. So they've become um, kind of mudbloods, you know, half-breeds. Uh, they're not, uh, they're not um, pure, true Jews who, who went through the exile and therefore are looked down on as a kind of second-rate people uh, by the Jews, not authentically Jewish, um, even though they claim a shared history. And Jesus meets this woman at a well, and so there are, there's this historical significance and baggage in the place and then there's the, the cultural divide between the two uh, in terms of him being Jewish and her being Samaritan. But there's also just the, the cultural taboo on the fact of, of a, a man talking to an unaccompanied woman under these circumstances. We saw that she had gone out to the, to the well to draw water at noon. Nicodemus had sought Jesus at night to avoid other people and she had come out at noon 
to avoid other people. The women usually came first thing in the morning or, or last thing in the, in the, in the, in the day at, at sundown to get water. Here she is on her own in the heat of the day, the very last time that you would collect water. And so there's, for some reason, she's isolated. And so we've looked at all of that kind of background and baggage and seen that this is actually, she's quite a strong woman. We don't know why she had had five husbands and the one that she was with now was not her husband. It may be that some of those husbands died and it may be that others divorced her. She certainly seems to be in a woman with a, with a, with a level of confidence and articulation um, and, and uh, courage and boldness that is atypical for her uh, time and situation and circumstances. If she's someone who's been shunned within her community, and she's now talking to a male at the well on her own, then she's quite a, a gutsy woman, either that or she's just a defiant one. Um, but there's certainly something about the way she handles herself in the conversation where she keeps coming back at Jesus. He keeps saying something and she keeps coming back. She keeps coming back with an answer. She keeps taking it to the next level, all the way to the point where um, Jesus reveals himself to her as the Messiah. When the, I know that Messiah is coming, when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And so even at that level, I'm not just taking it from you. <laughs> Always going to a higher authority. I know that when Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. I, who am speaking to you, I am. And then scene changes, and so we get to where we're starting from today. And the disciples come back. And there's this kind of shift back to the norm. Jesus and the woman have challenged just about every norm, have challenged all of the baggage in the background of that story. It's a place of covenant for the Jewish people, and yet Jesus has been happy to talk to a Samaritan. It's a place where a lone woman was vulnerable historically, and here is a lone woman vulnerable at the well. It's a place of cultural hostility and ethnic division, and yet here is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman and she to him as though there were none of the religious, cultural, historical, social, or ethnic taboos or barriers standing between them. It's quite a remarkable conversation. It's as if everything that keeps them apart dissolves because Jesus isn't prepared to let any of this stuff. And let's not forget that Jesus knew the moral baggage, whatever that was. Now, maybe she was just a victim five times, but now she's with someone that's not her husband. So even if she was the victim in all other five cases, uh, and, and she was just put away because she was an unmanageable woman, or she was put away because, for whatever reason, it didn't necessarily take much, or she was widowed, she is now in a situation where she's chosen to live with uh, someone, or she's having an affair with someone else's husband. It's not clear which. Um, and so there's a whole other moral layer why Jesus, as an as a, as a observant rabbi, should not be talking to her. And yet here is Jesus willing to cross every single line 
barrier, hurdle, in order to have this conversation. That's quite powerful. That's quite powerful when we make it personal and imagine all the reasons in our lives why Jesus might not have been willing to talk to us, why Jesus might not have wanted to come after us as we sang in that song there. There's a recklessness about the love of God in this story that pursues a woman who for a million reasons he should not be pursuing. And I mean that in the best sense of that word. And so here come the disciples and suddenly, chunk, we're, we're right back. All the cultural baggage, the framework, the box has descended again. In this culture, a rabbi wouldn't even talk to his wife in public. That's how rigid the divide was. Even to this day in Middle Eastern countries, uh, you know, communication uh, can be minimal. And I haven't lived there, so you come and correct me if I'm wrong afterwards, because I know some of you have. But, you know, a culture where in some instances the women clothed uh, entirely out of sight would be expected to walk several paces behind, uh, certainly no uh, public displays of affection, no hand-holding, and so on. Nothing like that. A rabbi would not talk to his wife in public, and yet here the disciples come back to find this interaction going on. They, they, they have no frame of reference. And so they, they, they draw some conclusions. They make some assumptions. They say to uh, this woman, what do you want? Which is code for them saying to Jesus, do you want us to get rid of her for you? Because the assumption is that this woman is somehow pestering Jesus. She's latched on to him, even though he was the one who initiated the conversation. And their assumption is that it's her fault, that she's to blame, that somehow she's reprehensible here. But no one asked that question, even though it was the question they wanted to ask. No one asked the question, why are you talking with her? Because this isn't good for your image, Jesus. <laughs> you should not be seen having this conversation. But you see, they're prisoners of their culture. They're prisoners of their baggage. And ironically, this woman, at this point, probably has received more revelation about who Jesus is than they have. <laughs> I mean, certainly this far in John's gospel, we haven't read all that much about Jesus' disciples. Never imagine that Jesus isn't revealing himself to somebody just because they're in a life situation or a state or a state of mind or a circumstance that, that seems beyond the pale to you. I have, as you know, or some of you know, a weekly Bible study here, which I do with um, um, Glasgow City Mission and, and um, Bethany Connected Community. And the guys that come along to that group have one time or another done jail time. And they're all in different stages of life. And there was a guy there uh, on Thursday, an absolutely delightful guy, but he was as high as a kite because he was going on a bus that night to Manchester 
and he was going to have to wait in Manchester for three or four hours for someone to come and pick him up and take him to the Carpenter's Arms, which is a Christian rehab facility down south. And I don't know whether it was something that he'd taken as a kind of last party before he was going to be coming off, or whether it was the absence of things that normally kept him calm or level, but he was on the ceiling. Oh, my word. And we, we, we had so many guys, we just split into two groups, and it was just me and one other leader, David. And so David took all the mellow guys, including Sandy, over to this table over here. And I had all these guys over here, and it was fireworks, I tell you. This guy would not stop talking. He would not stop talking, and he had an answer for everything, and he wasn't listening to anything anywhere else. So I kept having to say, all right, now just hold that thought, because someone over here needs to speak. He's not quite finished yet, so just hold it. But you know, every time he opened his mouth, he came out with some beautiful and quite profound insights into the passage that we were reading. He came out with some things that showed me that he really got it. He really understood what was going on in the story. We were reading the story of um, when John the Baptist was beheaded because um, Herodias' daughter danced and so on. Uh, and he really understood. And he spoke so passionately about wanting to get his life sorted out and, and wanting to get to know God better. Anybody else who'd met him would just have thought, junkie. but he was and is on a place, a journey, a road of wanting to know Jesus and get everything sorted out. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's what was going on here, is that here was somebody who in every other eyes was beyond the pale. And when the disciples came back, they had no frame of reference. And so... The woman then left, clearly sensing a shift in the dynamic <laughs> where she'd had this welcoming and open and inviting conversation with Jesus that had reached this powerful revelatory climax. I who am speaking to you, I am. Suddenly there was a chill in the air in the middle of the day, and so she took herself back off to her village, and she left her water jar behind. Now it's, you know, we can overread <laughs> pictures and symbols and make more of them they are. She just left her water jar behind. It wasn't a kind of symbolic theological statement. Here and now, I leave my old ways behind. But it was interesting that now Jesus, who had wooed her, if you like, with the offer of living water, in her excitement, in her excitement, left the very important thing that she had come at great cost to herself in the middle of the day because something better had come up. You know, there was no uh, duty here or obligation. This is just raw excitement. It's just raw excitement. Jesus, renew my raw excitement. Renew my passion. Because I've known, and I hope you've known, you know, certainly just seasons of, of, of intensity, of the closeness of the Lord, of the power of the Spirit, of, of just fresh revelation of the love of God, where actually, who cares about a jar of water? <laughs> who cares? Because something beautiful, something amazing. And here is a woman who's come 
in loneliness and isolation and exile perhaps within our community, if that's not overstating it. And she has discovered and she's found a welcome. And let me just remind you of what it was that she did when she got back to her community. Let's, you know, cast your mind back over the conversation. And did she go back and say, come meet a Jewish man who was willing to talk to me, a Samaritan? No, she did not. Did she go back and say, come meet a man who has made an offer of living water so that I will never have to go and draw water at the well again? No, she did not. Did she say, come meet a man who has settled the age-long theological dispute about which mountain we should worship God on? No, she did not. What did she go back to her community and tell them? Out of all of that conversation, out of all the, the richness of that encounter, what was it she said, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did? And what does that tell you about the reality of her need and of our need. Because it just tells me that here was a woman who had encountered a non-judgmental, welcoming, insightful, understanding, prophetic conversation where a man who could have refused to talk to her at all engaged her in conversation, knew about everything she'd ever done because that was the sum total of her life story. You know, and you saw that book up there, which you're in that little clip, you're meant to think it's a Bible she's given him. And it's, I don't know, could you see that it said on the front, my story? It wasn't a Bible, it's my story. What were the chapters of her story? Chapter one, what was his name? Chapter two, what was his name? Chapter 3, you know, maybe she started with chapter 1 was her family and her upbringing and so on, but her life in that culture was summed up by the relationships, all of which had, sailed, had failed. So the sum total of her story was a big fat mess. And here was a man with prophetic insight. Here was a man who maybe could be the Messiah. Here was a man who did not judge or condemn me here was a man who knew everything I had ever done. And yet, welcomed me and did not shun me. Indeed, asked something of me. And so she went back to her village and, you know, sometimes, I, don't, don't you just want to know the bits in between? Sometimes I really want to know the bits in between. Like now, put yourself in the village, all right? Now you're in the village. She's on her way back in. We're not at the well anymore. And here comes the woman. She has no jar. And she's arriving back in the community. How does she go about it? Come meet a man who told me everything I ever do, I've ever done. Or come see a man. I mean, of all the women in the community, she comes back and says, I've met a man. And yet here is her testimony and something presumably of her gutsiness, something of her, I don't care what they think, something of her courage, 
something of her passion and something of the enthusiasm and the joy that was lighting up her faith, her face, sorry, not yet her faith, but almost, made these other townsfolk who, we don't know what they thought of her. I'm drawing an awful lot of conclusions and assumptions here, but let's assume that there were some people in the community who were favorably disposed to her. Maybe her family, maybe her neighbors, I don't know. And yet she came with this simple message, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done, your story. Come see a man who changed my life. Come see a man who gives me hope. Come see a man who has not rejected me even though he has every reason to. Come see a man who died and gave his life so that I could have a relationship with God. Come see a man who has transformed and changed me in the inside, and I don't quite understand what's happened, but I know I'm different now. Come see a man who, when I met, gave me enough strength, security, confidence, call, certainty, call it what you like, to live my life for him, even though in the flesh I've never met him. Come see a man who knew me and knows me, and I can't speak about your life, and I can't speak about matters of high theology or or all the rest of it, but come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. What's your story? What is your story about Jesus? Because all she had, a bit like the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, on the roads going south in Gaza, and has this brief encounter with Philip the evangelist. And at the end of it, he's got the scroll of Isaiah. He's got a a revelation about how this points to Jesus. He's been baptized, and then he's on his own. You know, little fragments. You do not have the whole story. You have little fragments, and you have your own story. And that, according to this encounter, and plenty other of the gospel witness, seems to be enough. So, as much as I would encourage you to, you know, take the opportunity to look at the Talking Jesus chorus, uh, course, don't tuck that thought away and say, ah, yes, once I've been on a course, I'll be ready. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? Once I've done a course. No, you're ready now because you already have your story. And you already have, some of you, most of you, hopefully, the reason why you're here. And some of you may be here because you want to find out about this Jesus. And so the disciples scale it back beautifully to the boring and the pedestrian. Do you want a snack? (laughs) Have some food. They sound like a Jewish mother. Eat something. (laughs) And Jesus says, I have food that you to eat that you know nothing about. You know, there are times and seasons uh, in serving the Lord, and I don't know, maybe you've known them as well, you just get so caught up in, 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 you know, in the things of God and what you're doing, you, you even forget to eat. <laughs> Jesus wasn't really bothered about food because the food that he had to eat was, was the nourishment of this life in the Spirit. 
The woman had come for water and went away without water. The disciples brought food, and Jesus wasn't interested in food. Because the things of God and the things of the kingdom supersede the eating and drinking, even though those things are necessary. And so Jesus goes on to speak uh, these amazing words. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is what Jesus feeds off. The desire, the longing to find people like this woman who thought that her life was defined by failure and brokenness and actually send them back to their community with a message of hope. And there are all sorts of people walking up and down the street whose lives may be uh, marked and defined by failure, brokenness, poverty, or disappointment. And that is not, in Jesus' opinion, the last word on their lives, but they may think it is. It's one of the beauties of of, uh, working with the, the, the guys on a Thursday is that here are a group of guys who have every reason to think game over and yet are discovering hope and life and joy in believing the Word of God and discovering and encountering a Jesus who knows everything they've ever done and who loves and accepts them. And it's true of you. Our crimes are just less visible. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest, one of those kind of uh, marking of time, manana, manana, que sera, sera kind of uh, proverbs that just puts things on hold. And Jesus says, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And they are ripe for harvest. But the thing is, that the harvest that, they, uh, that, that, that God needs to bring in. You know, sometimes in our heads, we, we imagine, you know, mission and evangelism to be this huge gargantuan task. Here we are with 91 million people going up and down the road, uh, Buchanan Street, in the course of a year or whatever the current statistic is. And, you know, sometimes I've, I've been here and I've thought, oh my goodness, 91 million people, that's a ferocious responsibility. Well, the good news is that I and we are not personally or corporately responsible as a fellowship for all 91 million. But we are responsible. We are responsible for looking and seeking to uh, harvest in the fields as and when we have that opportunity. And in the course of your conversations and your going about in the course of a week, there are those opportunities. And maybe like that little snapshot in the video clip where the guy's saying, oh, no, it's not their sort of thing. They wouldn't want to. And she says, just invite them. How do you know if you never talk about it? How, how do I know if I never share Jesus or ask the question or, or have the conversation with the person or the people that I know who, who are not interested in him. I was at a presbytery conference because that's how I roll on Saturday mornings yesterday. Um, and it was a kind of a bit of a hand-wringing thing, you know. And yet, we forced ourselves not to just wring hands and, you know, in gloomy despair, but to tell good news stories. And it was good to tell good news stories. And here, of the good things that are happening, because sometimes we just, we can create this big gray blanket, and then we just whimper under it. 
But actually the reality is that here and there in pockets and places, in individual congregations and people's lives and stories, there's good stuff happening. There's good stories to be told. And there are seasons where you will sow and there are seasons where you will reap. The sower and the reaper may be glad together. And I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. So you're going into harvest fields in work or study or community or in family or whatever where somebody else has sown the seed. Apparently, 67%, according to the research, 67% of people know a Christian, an active Christian. That's quite a high statistic. And more interestingly not, 43% of people surveyed who would consider themselves as being outside the church, 43% of those people believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Go figure. So, people have a cultural assumption or something that Jesus rose from the dead. And apparently 20%, which admittedly is not a high statistic, but when you break it down and say one in five is interested in knowing more about Jesus. So, count off your friends or your colleagues. One in five is interested in knowing more, but we think no one's interested in knowing anything, and we'll keep it in-house. But actually, there's more interest out there than you or I might think. And as this woman goes back to her community, she tells people in her community, and many of them believe because of her testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. Doesn't seem to me like a massive testimony. Here is a random stranger who knew that I'd been married five times and I was with someone who's not my husband. So there was something passionate and compelling because it's not much of a testimony to cause the people of that town in Samaria to start coming out because they wanted to know. But look what happened. She told the little bit of her story that she had, and it didn't mean that those people put their faith in Jesus, but it did mean that they took steps towards Jesus. They began to come out to him. They came out of the town, verse 30, and made their way towards him. And then we have the little follow-up bit that many of the Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. And so they then urged Jesus to stay with them, and he stayed two days, just bearing in mind this is a, an area that good observant Jews would, would take a long detour to avoid. They certainly wouldn't eat their food, drink out of their vessels, sleep in their houses, or stay in their communities. And Jesus, and he obliged his disciples to stay for two days in a place of no welcome or a place of, of a historical hostility. And because of his words, many more became believers. He went into their community. He went into their community. Now, our standard approach is to get people to come to our place, come to our event or our service. And yet, sometimes, literally or metaphorically, it's about finding ways of putting ourselves in somebody else's world 
in order to have the conversation there. That's why they criticized Jesus, because he hung out in people's houses. You know, tax collectors and sinners and all manners, he put himself at the mercy of their hospitality. He put himself into the place where they were in charge, and he was vulnerable, so to speak. And I don't know what that might look like for you, but I do know that the upshot is that they went past the woman to Jesus. And she had planted a seed, and she had played a part, but they no longer believed just because of what she said. Now they'd heard for themselves. And we know, get this, if it had got to Messiah and I am, that this man really is the Savior of the world. I don't know how they knew that. Jesus hadn't died yet, but they had a profound sense of who Jesus was for themselves. All you and I are asked to do is to own our story, is to lose our preconceptions about who might possibly be someone that Jesus is interested in, maybe go into the world, literally, metaphorically, emotionally, of somebody else, and tell what we know to be true is that Jesus met us without judging us in a place perhaps we wouldn't want to be or be found, and Jesus has come to our rescue. Jesus died upon a cross, and believing that has somehow brought transformation, change, and hope into our lives as we've come to accept and receive the forgiveness of God. So, whether or not you want to do the Talking Jesus courses, neither here nor there, it's just an aid to stimulate you to do what you're already right now capable of doing. And maybe it's just a question of raising our prayer and our expectation. Lord, open my eyes. Show me who I am to pray for. Renew my concern for the person who doesn't know that they are loved or lovable because the grace of God goes beyond the place of judgment to the place of mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. So, I'm going to invite you just to be still with me for a few moments and, and just pray, and let's just pray and listen and see who pops into your mind. Uh, who are the people that maybe Jesus wants uh, you to be the sower or the reaper for? <clears throat>